0: What's up, my fellow foodie? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show to get you closer to your food source and learn the skills so that every year can be a year of plenty for you. As always, I'm your host, Poldy Wieland, and this episode is a conversation with Natalie Early about the gut microbiome, approaches to healing the gut, and embracing ancestral living. Natalie is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, and she is certified in nutrition pathology and functional medicine. She was also mentored by Mary Ruddick, who I've had on a podcast before where we talked about all things traditional diets around the world. And Natalie has a lot of uh, clients that she guides in her practice about digestive disorders and a bunch of other chronic diseases and whatnot. But specifically, the digestive disorders have become super prevalent here in the Western world and just around the world in general. And that's not ideal because we all love food and we want to be able to enjoy the food, right, that is around us, especially that healthy food. Now, the good news, though, is that these digestive disorders can be reversed through nutritional strategies and lifestyle changes, and we get into some really actionable tips during this conversation. So, as always, just for a quick episode overview so you know what to expect, we start out by talking about Natalie Early's healing journey through functional medicine because she started out with having a ton of issues herself. Then we take a scientific deep dive into the gut microbiome and look at how it works. We talk about factors like environmental stressors and food that can lead to an unhealthy gut microbiome and digestive disorders. We talk about the connections between ancestral living and a healthy gut microbiome. Foods to eat and to avoid in order to improve your gut microbiome and reverse gut issues. Along those lines, we talk about how intermittent fasting, so not eating for a certain period of time, can also improve gut issues. And finally, we end with what a gut healing journey looks like and how long we can expect it to take. But before we get into this episode, I want to share a quick word about our podcast sponsor, Montana Block. Montana Block is graciously offering you a 15% discount off their entire wooden kitchen board selection with the code Year Plenty. all lowercase letters. Have you ever wanted a kitchen tool that not only looks stunning, but can also last a lifetime? Well, let me introduce you to Montana Block, a small family-owned business that creates exceptional wooden kitchen products. I'm talking about functional, high-quality, and unique end-grain butcher blocks and more. What sets Montana Block apart from others? Well, they pour their heart and soul into every single product. Each piece is meticulously crafted by hand using all American-made materials. How cool is that? And these aren't just ordinary cutting boards. They're kitchen masterpieces designed to withstand the test of time. Now listen closely because this offer is really too good to resist. Montana Block is graciously granting you guys a fantastic 15% discount on their entire collection. Just use the code Plenty at checkout on their website, which is mtblock.com, and treat yourself with a quality cutting board or one of their awesome wooden magnetic knife holders. If you take advantage of this offer, some of the money will kick back to the Year of Plenty podcast, so this is a great way for you to help support the show. And one more thing, Montana Block is committed to your satisfaction. If you ever need a repair, they're there to lend a helping hand, ensuring your beloved cutting board stays by your side throughout your entire culinary journey. And, you know, if you take good care of it, you can even pass it on to your kids or a friend or another family member. So why settle for mass-produced, potentially toxic, mediocre cutting boards when you can embrace the artisanal brilliance of Montana Block? Head on over to emptyblock.com today and remember to use the code Year of Plenty to claim your exclusive 15% off. Okay, if you want to get a conversation started with me, follow me on Instagram, which is at PoldyWheeland, and send me a direct message over there. Otherwise, send an email to plenty at gmail.com. Also, please follow this podcast if you haven't already and leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This really helps with the podcast getting into the charts and other foodies discovering the show. All right, that's enough housekeeping. Get ready to learn from Natalie Early. All right, so Natalie, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I know. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I've had your colleague Mary Rudigan before and we just talked about a little bit before I hit the record button that to this day that's, you know, one of my most like best episodes and it's just you guys talk about some really important stuff which is you know ancestral healing ancestral food and dieting and and really healing the body um through natural ways right and in holistic ways Mm -hmm. instead of just through western medicine which also has its place i think but um yeah i know you do a lot with gut health and you've you have your own clients and whatnot and i was just really curious about it and just ready to pick your brain on it a little bit. So, you yeah. know, to start out, I, I think I'd love to hear a bit about your background story because uh, I've heard a bit of it before and I think it's really interesting. And I'd love to know like what motivated you to go deep down the ancestral traditional food rabbit hole.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I'd love to answer that question because I think we all learn from different people's stories and their healing journeys. Uh, And that's really what got me into nutrition research and becoming a practitioner, nutrition therapy practitioner um, myself was because of my own health issues from stemming from likely a standard American diet and definitely a microbiome imbalance. And so yeah, when I, uh, my health crises really culminated when I was in college. Um, I actually look back and I don't say this a whole lot in a lot of the podcast interviews that I, I speak on, but I, I do see now that a lot of it stemmed from the HPV vaccine that I mm. got at that time. It was a big trigger to my immune system, but definitely I had uh, symptoms when I was younger of microbiome imbalances. Uh, A lot of this looked like uh, dysregulation of my stress response system because of uh, trauma as a kid. And then I had yeast and overgrowth. I had lots of frequent infections, stomach aches, um, hormone imbalances when I started uh my period in when I was in high school, I didn't have cystic acne at all, or any kind of acne at all during high school. And then in college, everything kind of just crashed for me, I started getting lots of chronic UTI infections, bronchitis, so my immune system just kaput. (laughs) And I uh, was at this time, actually, I was on a vegan diet and it was by default, um, or not, I wasn't intentionally doing a vegan diet, but I was intentionally pescatarian. Mm. And this was, uh, just mostly for, I was trying to do it for environmental purposes. Um, I found out though, through a naturopath about some food sensitivities to gluten, dairy, and eggs, and that just wiped out a lot of my animal-based proteins, and so it was by default then vegan, which right. didn't because you weren't be eating
0: cold. you weren't eating red meat at all. It was just right. fish and maybe eggs, and you couldn't eat those mm-hmm. anymore. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. And i I was eat, I was running marathons in college. I was pushing myself. Um, like, I had a lot of chronic fatigue, but I, I pushed myself. I, I kind of just, I thought it was normal because we're in college and, you know, staying up late at night sometimes and trying to get things done. But, um, I would say that the recovery time just over time slowly and slowly deteriorated. And I was getting more and more anxiety, depression, um, PTSD symptoms, um, a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms, a lot of, Chronic fatigue and more candida, more of the same, right? So I didn't lose, I didn't get rid of a lot of those issues that I had when I was a kid on that kind of diet. And I was prioritizing, you know, plant based proteins and exercising and thought that I was healthy. At one point I was actually diagnosed with, uh, pre diabetes and I was eat, I was just hungry all of the time. I was insatiably hungry. Um, obviously not getting enough protein. And, and then around that time, I started to see a nutritionist who was a certified nutrition therapy practitioner, which inspired me because of her help to me. Um, She inspired me to go along that route for myself Um and so, yeah, through working with her and then um, self-research and continuing to educate myself, I I did something called the GAPS diet or protocol. Um, the gut it stands for the gut and psychology as well as gut and physiology syndrome protocol. And that was really what my nutritionist did with me to help recover from all of these symptoms. I was starting to get a lot of... The cystic acne had gotten better, surprisingly, um, during even the the vegan diet, really? but yeah. Why do you think yeah. that was? Um, well, it would flare when I ate the, um, with when I would eat gluten. And I think it, a lot of it is because of the immune system. Um, when... Well, so the digestive symptoms got worse for me, but the cystic acne, I think I was overall just malnourished and my body in general didn't have the, the building blocks to, I also lost my, my period at times. So I was, I was kind of a wreck. Um, even though I didn't have acne, it was likely because I just didn't have enough hormones in general. So there wasn't any side effects of having too much hormonal excess of estrogen. Mm. Um and then I wasn't when I wouldn't eat gluten though it was difficult for me to stay away from gluten on a vegan diet I think. Right. Um it was yeah it, it definitely would flare my acne. So but so my cystic acne got better but then I started to develop cysts in other places of my body, right? So behind my ear is a common place. Um there's some like on different parts of my neck and things like that that would show up. So Um, a little different than cystic acne, but still a similar, um, etiology for me anyways, there can be a different, we can talk about that later, but, um, I, I just realized that, you know, these things were finally, um, well, also I was getting cavities, a ton of cavities. Um, so I, I needed to remineralize my body and rebuild my body. And it was through the gaps diet that really turned that around for me. Um uh, I would say my 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 healing journey like many is a long one and even once I started seeing uh, clients and uh, continued that pro- progress with my own health and um practicing I would still have little things come up um for example I knew that mercury toxicity ran in my family so diabetes didn't Run in my family, but Alzheimer's runs in my family. And so I had um, mercury fillings that I, I wanted to get out. So I had gotten to a place with my health that it was really, really great. And then I decided to get my amalgam fillings out and my immune system crashed again. Oh, wow. So yeah. So part of that is because of what we'll talk about just the landscape of the gut microbiome and its role in protecting us from toxins. And when I removed the the source of this toxin, my body was able to finally get rid of a lot of those, those heavy metals. And during that process, there was a healing crisis right uh that occurs and this is one of the confusing things to doing gut healing work is that when you start a healing a gut healing microbiome shifting diet there's often an increase of symptoms that are usually a die-off reaction and it could be very confusing for people because you would think that your health would immediately get better right, and yeah. For me, I knew that it was the right path for me to go because so many other things did get better. And so I knew it wasn't the diet per se that was causing this issue at the time. It was really a healing reaction and that I needed to let my body or support my body in allowing it to um, to heal. So uh so then I, I worked at a functional medicine clinic for for three years and during that time, I really loved my practice there because it exposed me exposed me to so many different modalities of healing. There's um, lots. I love functional medicine doctors and the testing that's, uh we can do to really assess more. Uh, strategically about what's what's at the root cause for a lot of people. But I was getting more and more dissatisfied with the practice there because of the way that we would really depend solely on supplements and stool testing Mm. (laughs) and a lot of just excess testing that I think at a certain point can be really helpful to motivate us or help guide us in direction, but a lot of functional tests aren't quite diagnostic. So I've heard
0: they're not like super accurate always.
1: Right. Especially the stool tests. Uh, I I found them to just be a little misleading and confusing. And um, the the way, what I know to be true about the microbiome system, uh, which is this ecosystem inside of us that uh, it, of bacteria, different protozoa, lots of different species of that are really kept in balance in a healthy in a healthy ecosystem and a healthy person? And um, we can go more into the benefits of the microbiome, but they. We only know so much still to this day. And so the testing is very rudimentary and not well applied, I think, and, and what we can address. But what I, I do know is with any system, it takes time and slow uh, st- strategies to that are really gentle to change a system. Oftentimes when we have this complex system and we try to address it with, you know, a, a more of an aggressive antifungal, antibacterial, even in terms of from food, um, from herbs, and and certain types of food that too much of an aggressive uh, treatment, I guess, can create a lot of side effects and impacts to the system that we're not fully aware of. I think so. I. Was dissatisfied working at the functional medicine clinic and I wanted to create my own practice. So I was more based on um, healing from food and more from ancestral traditions. I was also, I love talking about like what I learned at the functional medicine clinic and in my experience there because uh, there's so much research on the microbiome, right? That is very confusing to the public. I know that. One client just came to me this week and was saying, I did all the research, and he's a microbiologist, and he he's he knows exactly uh the, that the research, especially in the West, is showing, pointing towards more of like a plant-based Mediterranean style diet. But in my practice and in my own experience, it hasn't been the case to help me in and a lot of my my clients with resolving their, uh, the root cause of microbiome dysbiosis. And, and we, I have some hunches to why that's the case. And there's some research too, to support this, um, that we can get into, but the, the, the research I think is a little skewed towards the healthy user bias with our microbiomes. Can
0: you explain that quick to healthy user bias?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the healthy user bias just speaks to how in the United States, people who tend to eat healthier uh, and are focused on their health or maybe more exercise, um you know, active and uh, having more healthy lifestyle practices other than eating as well will uh, will not those kinds of variables aren't always accounted for in in some research. So for the human microbiome study, there was a propensity towards people who had the conclusion showed that people who ate a more broad spectrum of diverse uh, diet, <laughs> are going to have a more diverse microbiome and healthier outcomes, and the problem with that is that we we don't know what else they were these people are doing to in their lifestyle that are affecting their their diet uh, or their microbiome per se. So things that also impact our microbiome are sunlight exposure, antibiotic use, medications, and so stress people too, who-
0: right? Stress can yes. be a factor, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it could be that those other things have bigger impacts on our microbiome than the diverse leafy uh, or diff- diverse vegetables that people are consuming. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you think like, um, that it's often maybe even the stressors and these other factors play a bigger role than the food?
1: I do. I, I do think that um, stress in general plays a huge role the biggest role in our microbiome wow. the the thing the caveat there is that a lot of the standard american diet is very stressful on the human body true so that's a that i kind of lump it all together when i talk about stress with my clients is that we can control yes, um, some things in our life to reduce our stress. And one of those is what we eat. Um, what we're actually putting in our body can impact our stress response greatly.
0: Right. It's not uh-huh. just like stress from a stressful day at work, but all these other factors that you might not even be aware of. Right. Right. Like, even, like a toxin in your teeth, like you had. Like exactly. mercury, for example. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: And it's it seems like so many people are struggling with the issues that you laid out at the beginning, and, is, and and especially the gut, like it's crazy how many people and just I meet mm-hmm. and that are in my life right now that just seem to have some sort of gut issues, including myself in some days. Like I think I'm I you know I eat really ancestrally, and but even mm-hmm. if I like let's say make like a chai tea with like a lot of heavy cream or something, even though I use like an organic grass-fed pasture-raised cream, you know my gut doesn't like yes. it always. And, yes. um, and I know you've healed a lot of people like through your practice and, and I want to get to some of those approaches, but before, you know, you've already kind of laid out some of it, like what the microbiome kind of yeah. is and whatnot, but maybe we can just briefly talk about why we like should care. And I guess that kind of goes in with like how the microbiome is connected to the rest of our body. Like what, mm-hmm. can, you know, what, what does the microbiome really do?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think it's so important and and isn't talked about enough about how dependent the health of a human body is on the microbiome. Right. So, yeah, I I described like what the microbiome is, is basically this gut uh, ecosystem inside your gastrointestinal system. And a lot, this is kind of, if we can go into the the details a little bit for people to understand, I I think when I first was introduced to the gut microbiome i just thought oh yeah that's like my small intestines and then my colon but the uh the larger diversity and uh the bulk of the bacteria that's present in the microbiome is in the colon and it should mostly be in the colon and then we have our small intestine that you know from stomach the stomach really shouldn't have very much bacteria at all it's very acidic and right. it's there it's that way for a reason it helps with protecting us from invading bacteria to come in to our body so it's a, it's a protective mechanism to have very acidic uh, stomach acid and then in the duodenum it's also quite sterile there's not a there shouldn't be a lot of Bacteria present there. And then as we move through the small intestines, you get a little bit more. But again, the ileocecal valve, which is in between the small intestines and the colon, there's a valve there to actually pr- protect a lot of backflow from bacteria in the colon to go into the small intestines. So that's how it's, sh- that's the gastrointestinal tract. And the microbiome really does uh reside mostly in the colon. However, the small intestine does, uh, when we say the microbiome, we are kind of speaking to the whole ecosystem throughout the whole digestive tract. And we also can be speaking to, there's different types of microbiomes on other places of our body. There's the vaginal microbiome, there's the ocular microbiome, the sinus oral, and, uh, and those, all of these different parts of the microbiome and is, is in, they're communicating and interplaying together. So a really interesting thing is that uh, for for women that I work with sometimes if they have yeast infections you can a, a natural treatment option is actually to use a garlic clove and to insert that into the vaginal canal really? and the fung antifung- Yes, it's antifungal, it's antibacterial, and it helps with the pH of the va- the vaginal canal, which helps with killing off in- a yeast infection. But the moment some a woman will do that, you can actually taste the garlic in your mouth. Wow. And so there's a huge connection and interplay between the gut bacteria inside of our intestines and the microbiome elsewhere all over our body. This is why things that we put on our skin, on our halo biome, which is the skin microbiome, impacts us internally as well. Uh, So so this you can imagine like it's fun to think about that really we are more bacteria than human yeah that's a
0: wild fact i heard first when i looked into this i think it's like i don't know exactly but it's like billions of bacteria cells to like one human cell i think right exactly yes it's wild So we will get back to the episode in just a bit. I just wanted to jump in real quick to let you guys know how you can best support the Year of Plenty podcast. If you get value from the show, please consider doing a monthly donation on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Otherwise, if you're more into the one-time donations, you can leave a donation for however much you think is fair over at my Buy Me A Coffee page. Both platforms will be linked in the episode description. Also, please share an episode with your friends or on social media. Doing that will let other foodies like you and I discover the show and come along for the ride. And finally, if you want to connect with me personally, head over to my Instagram, which is at PoldyWheeland. Follow me over there and let's get a conversation started. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for your support. Let's get back to the episode.
1: Yes it is it's very wild and we also have a virome right so that's the uh, another um ecosystem of viruses that are in the body at all times and uh we these viruses can either be activated or and and promoted to like fed there's the there's different states of the body that create a um more likely environment for a virus to be activated versus a more antiviral state of the body. So, with the microbiome and having so many of these bacteria and protozoa, a healthy microbiome can do a lot of things for us and we're very dependent on it. And I like to there's big there's a big four of like what the microbiome does. So, the microbiome will produce a lot of nutrients Nutrients for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people think that we digest our food with the mechanics of like the hydrochloric acid and chewing. And that's, that's how we absorb our nutrients, right? But what's actually happening is we do mechanically, you know, chew our food, stomach acid breaks those down a little bit um, into smaller chains. And then we use enzymes to help with that. But then we are dependent on some of the that food actually feeding the bacteria inside of us and us absorbing the byproducts. So it's either a source of nutrition for us, or if it's uh out of balance, we'll get uh, a source of toxins for our body and not enough nutrition. And this is why a lot of people with chronic illness can either be overweight and that's uh, weight is a, a symptom of toxicity. so the major source of toxicity is coming from bacteria overgrowth in our gut then we're gonna get weight gain or we have very thin uh, malnourished individuals um, th- where they don't store the weight but they are not absorbing enough of the nutrients and they're they're uh, actually, yeah, very skinny, <laughs> too skinny, unhealthily skinny. Um, So then another great thing that the microbiome does for us is help balance our hormones. It helps with detoxifying the hormones and other toxins that we get exposed to. The microbiome also helps with balancing our neurotransmitters. So there's the gut, you know, the gut is really like our second brain. It helps produce serotonin, dopamine. Um and, and balancing our mood and a lot of psychological um, issues or I guess, um, yeah, imbalances are really created from different bacterial overgrowth also. And then lastly is our immune system is right there in the gut microbiome. And there's different immune regulation pathways happening from the balance of good bacteria and some good bacteria even kill opportunistic bacteria so it's it's really uh it's really quite simple that if we get enough of these good bacteria that we can have a, st- a stable ecosystem and it's it's a happy happy place wow. <laughs> a happy person
0: that so. yeah i mean it sounds like the microbiome is everything it's like i mean it, it sounds like it's got such an important effect on every part of your body and i mean i know it's such a new frontier still like you know just micro like microbes in general right microbiology is a pretty new science so i'm like i can't wait for what we're going to discover in the future about it i know and because and it seems like i mean you just mentioned like um you know that's one of the things that these bacteria do is turn our food into nutri- other nutrients or make it more digestible and whatnot. it sounds so similar to what's happening in the soil and like a symbiosis yes. between like trees and the mi- the microbes around the roots and whatnot. So there's, there's gotta be, I mean, it seems like this rules the world. It's not just happening in us. It's like happening all over.
1: Yes. In nature. 100%. Yes. 100%. Yeah. I think that my, um, my journey from being vegan for environmental reasons, ultimately, I started to learn more and more about where my food was coming from and how it was being grown and um, started doing some wild foraging, too, like mu- mushroom hunting nice. and um, herbs in the Rocky Mountains and um just, bare, you know, the bare minimum, like very simple things. Uh, but it, it really was about uh, reconnecting with where my food came from. And then I noticed that, yeah, like in order to be vegetarian, there's a lot of demands on the soil and the nutrients really is coming from soil health. And when you look into soil health, you really are dependent on animal input and we need animals in our farming practices and there's actually a sustainable way we can do that through like regenerative farming practices which involves you know proper um m- movements and uh, more ancestral movements of, of ruminants on landscapes so that there's actually the building of soil and uh, the mycorrhizal network which yeah fungus is also a very big and a- Uh, part of the microbiome and it's, it's not necessarily bacteria, but I think we, we tend to be really afraid of mold and, and things like that for, you know, in the modern context for good reason, because these are new, (laughs) new kinds of mold exposures that we wouldn't traditionally have had, but really there's no reason to be afraid of these, these things. We just need to fully understand why they're out of balance. And I do think that it's because of the more industrialized practices that we're using to grow our food as well as um, in just our day-to-day life. When we think about the soil of our health, which I do like to say that, that that's the microbiome in our, in our gut. It's like the soil of our health.
0: Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I love that, and and it makes sense. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it it could be if someone hears this right now, it could be really overwhelming, or it is really overwhelming. It's like, well, what can I do? Well, thankfully, there are people like you out there who uh, try to understand it and try to you know work with people one on one to lead them to a a good outcome, you know, a healthy outcome. But yeah, the big question that I definitely wanna wanna answer, like, hear from you and that actually a lot of people on Instagram reached out about was just like, when do you even know that your gut is broken? You know? Uh, And, uh, because I think a lot of people they might have, you know, and this kind of goes with what is a healthy gut, because I think, you know, you can also maybe just have a few irregularities here and there and, um, maybe Mm -hmm. think that your gut is broken. But when is it like, when do you know that it's truly broken, you know?
1: Yeah. That's a really great question. um, because we should talk about leaky gut uh, with this because leaky gut is a term in the medical literature, it's known as intestinal permeability. And it's actually a phenomenon that is a normal phenomenon for the gut microbiome. And it's interplay with the intestinal lining. So I'll back up first to talk about like a healthy, what it looks like in a healthy gut microbiome. So, uh, with the microbiome present, the, the byproducts of the, the microbiome and those bacteria will actually feed the lining of the intestines. So the lining of the intestines kind of looks like this. There's a, drawings and things i actually have a um, a picture i can share my screen if we want to do that but yeah
0: if you if you want to i'd I'd love to see it
1: yeah so it's really great to visualize yeah (laughs) i'm a visual learner
0: i am too good good we'll have video for this so people will be able to see it oh cool
1: awesome yeah so this is the intestinal lining here in a healthy um healthy gut. There's these things called tight junctions in between each cell. So each cell is, is, um, looks like your hands with the, the microvilli on the top. The microvilli of each enterocyte or cell of the intestines is where we can actually absorb so much nutrition because that if we span out the microvilli of this small intestine, um, the, that is such a large surface area of absorption but right. these ce- these cells are really dependent on the uh, the health of the ecosystem of the ba- of the microbiome so th- i love this picture because it describes like these are very clear well-known documented um triggers for intestinal damage but before we talk about what's actually creating these leaky gut thing, um, this leaky, leaky gut situation in the, um, in the gut, leaky gut is our intestinal permeability does happen, um, periodically at times and it will seal up because of stimulus from the ecosystem. So a healthy ecosystem will make sure that the tight junctions remain tight long-term so you know once in a while when you have intestinal symptoms here and there that that might not indicate you have a chronic issue going on with leaky gut um but you can have leaky gut and not have any digestive symptoms at all so it's a really good question to be like well how do you know and uh the issue with having leaky gut chronic is that we get exposed to toxins, undigested food, um, the other toxins that are created from actually the, the bacteria. There's a measuring of in the, in the blood, we can measure LPS, which are Um, lipopolysaccharides, which is a byproduct of bacteria that's more toxic and it should not be found in the gut or sorry, in the blood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So these are the measuring tools that we can actually measure like LPS status in the blood to help see if you do have leaky gut. So
0: there are actual tests for it. I didn't know Mm -hmm. that. Okay. That's cool.
1: Um, you can also test for zonulin. Zonulin is a, um, a protein that's, uh, regulates the, the tight junctions of, um, intestinal cells. So there is a researcher in, in Italy who's well, his research is all about, the, um, intestinal permeability, gluten and its impact on intestinal permeability as well as in celiac and non-gluten sensitive or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so it's all the same. <laughs> basically, gluten stimulates zonulin, and zonulin upregulates leaky gut, and chronic leaky gut will lead to autoimmunity, inflammation, blood-brain barrier breaching, and malabsorption and nutrient deficiencies.
0: So basically, what what's happening, like... If mm-hmm. like if I were to explain it and and uh um, just looking at this picture, just for the people listening, you know, um basically your stomach contents or food contents in the or that move into the gut, um they will be able to move through your intestinal cells that are making up this barrier, and when mm-hmm. they can move through it because it's leaking, it gets into your bloodstream, and that can cause all these issues you just talked mm-hmm. about, like inflammation malabsorption of nutrients and all that right correct That's and so put really simply but yeah
1: <laughs> yeah as simple as better for a lot of my clients it's it's better i don't even talk about or show this too much because what uh with a healthy the simplest form of whether or not you know is do you have symptoms other symptoms so like we were talking about the gut microbiome infa- impacts everything. It impacts your allergies, it your immune system, autoimmunity. If you have any case of autoimmune disease, you know, you have leaky gut, even if you have no digestive symptoms, um, even situations like, uh, Anxiety and depression can be because of intestinal dysbiosis, autism, um, schizophrenia. Those are really more intense, uh, diseases. But the most common that I see are things like skin issues, like eczema, um, acne. Those are intestinal barrier issues because when we have, um, these intestinal cells, when we would normally have like very You know, that tight junction and healthy ecosystem of bacteria, the absorption of nutrients is really regimented and strict. Like the the guts is not going to let the wrong things in. It knows what we want and what we don't want. And so when we think about acne and skin issues and those kinds of things, it's the skin is an organ of, it's a barrier organ as well. And so when we have leaky, leaky gut, we often have leaky skin is what I like to say. So we're not creating a, a, a proper barrier of avoiding toxin and, um, uh, you know, disease to, to happen to the skin. And that also is, we can also, you know, put a lot of different types of probiotics on the skin that actually help with that barrier function from the outside in as well as we change the diet to help alleviate this kind of issue.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that cuz it, yeah, it's basically like a skin inside of you, right? Inside your mm-hmm. gut. Like it's a exactly. it's there to protect you. It's there to let through the things that you your body wants to get through but a lot of things it doesn't want. Yeah. Wanna. Get through or let move through, and if it's damaged, though, that will happen. uh, Yeah, I think it isn't like. What's a good like a good example of something that could move through and really cause some some inflammation?
1: Yeah. So a good example is actually like some dietary proteins like lectins. Mm-hmm. Um, lectins are a plant toxin. There's good lectins and there's not so good lectins. A not so good lectin example is gluten. And, uh, and then there are others that are found in other grains and legumes that are not necessarily glutinous, but they act very similar. They're in that family of, of the lectin family. And lectins, um, so in this picture, the dietary proteins, that that's something that can get into the bloodstream. And lectins are known to interact with our immune system, and they can create overactive immune branches as well as suppressing or it also can impact um, insulin levels and create more diabetes um, and spike blood sugar and interfere with insulin um, connectivity to the cell. So that's an example, very simple example of why autoimmune diseases do so much better when we do avoid lectins. And that might not be the full fix to fix the leaky gut, but it will really alleviate a lot of stress on the body. And that's a big, big component to healing.
0: Right. But the only way to really know would be with a test.
1: Right. A t- yeah, you can for leaky gut. I usually don't always test because when clients come to me, by the time they come to me, if they have, like, I can just tell when they have, have it or not. But if someone wants to test, absolutely. You test the blood for LPS levels and you can do stool or blood zonulin levels. And, um, the, other thing to know that if you've ever had an antibiotic i i think one um to go back to that original question of like how do you know you know when it's who broken. has yeah when is it broken um so we get our microbiomes from our mothers and then from their mothers Here I'll, i think i'll stop my share because i don't need that um but uh, we get our, our microbiomes through the vaginal birthing process and then through breastfeeding. So I always will look when I'm working with a client. Okay. Were they vaginally birthed or, uh, and did they have proper breastfeeding? Mm. And a lot of my clients have had either one of those missing is the link or both or will have antibiotic use early on in life and that will set the stage for microbiome imbalance for your whole life so the moment someone's had an antibiotic and most people have had one or two
0: yeah um
1: we can talk about how we recover from that more like for a standard person I think there's certain key species that would be that are eliminated every time you take an antibiotic, and we can replenish those so the sooner we get on board with that and places like in Europe it's it's well used in medicine and um, just like conventional medicine that anytime someone uses a pro- uh, an antibiotic, they're given a probiotic too, which unfortunately we don't do in our society. Our medical doctors don't do that as much. Um, I think it's getting we,
0: better, though. At least, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm having just better doctors, but I feel like that's I'm, good. I'm hearing it more. Yeah.
1: good I'm glad yes it's becoming finally the trickle down of the new research is is being used in practice so that's good but the those kinds of signs will automatically create a red flag also if anyone has any seasonal allergies that is a, a clear sign of immune activation from a, a like an influx of um, too many things coming into the bloodstream that are from leaky gut that you normally wouldn't have that kind of seasonal response. They're an allergy response to, to things in your atmosphere. So, um, and then a lot of my clients will have had like a chronic infection or a chronic um, gut infection or not chronic, an, an acute situation where like foodborne illness or they traveled somewhere and got a parasite something like that makes a big kind of it's like a big bomb bomb to the uh, microbiome and it's difficult it's more difficult to recover from that if you're not being more strategic about what you're feeding the good guys and uh, usually people aren't. People are just going to go to the doctor. They're going to be given um, medications, and then they're going to go back to eating the standard American diet after somewhat some resolution. Uh, most people might not have any. But things also, I look, look out for are birth control pills. They have been shown to create dysbiosis. Really?
0: Um, hmm That's not very talked about.
1: Yes, not at all. So, um, also a lot of form- quick hormonal shifts. So I'll, I'll look at symptomology for women if they are, a lot of women will experience like an autoimmune disease suddenly after pregnancy or giving birth. A lot of the time that's because of really intense hormone changes. Um, and then, and just the stress too can lead to that. And then during menopause, there's a lot of hormonal shifts happening that can influence the, um the microbiome there too so the leaky gut um is the most common thing that i see in my practice and a lot of people more and more are it's like a chronic epidemic or it's a huge epidemic i think in the modern world because of frequent antibiotic use lots of um pesticide exposure as well can impact our gut microbiome there's a really good research that, um, I think Dr. Zach Bush, um, has shown that glyphosate use on, or in, in, in the diet, uh, on pesticide uh, or on gluten and, and different vegetables that people are eating will deteriorate these little microvilli of ours. And that's because of the impact it's having on the gut bacteria. So, you know, those, those things we can regrow these guys and it takes, it doesn't take long to regrow the microvilli, but it does take longer to fully shift that ecosystem of different bacteria.
0: Right, which are um, damaging the microvilli constantly. Yes. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, the microvilli are like the little fingers on the cells in your gut lining, right? Kind of protecting exactly. yeah. Protecting your gut from in, things coming into the mm-hmm. bloodstream. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's
0: fascinating stuff. So you mentioned leaky gut is like the most common, but there's also other gut issues, right? That people can experience. Like I know I've heard of SIBO and IBS and Mm -hmm. can you cover some of those really just briefly? What, what how those would be different from a leaky gut? And maybe they even come hand in hand, you know?
1: Absolutely. I, I would say leaky gut is present, persistent among all gastrointestinal conditions. So the major ones that I'll see that people know of that, you know, when they come to me, they've already gone down the rabbit hole with SIBO, um, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, that is where, because we, we want most of the bacteria in our colon, um, small intestine bacterial overgrowth occurs when we get too much bacteria in the small intestine.
0: And is and that, that good be, good and bad bacteria or just bad bacteria?
1: Um, typically, it's just too much. So it could be good and bad. Okay. Yeah. And so the other, so SIBO is usually what people often think is the root cause of IBS. But what I've found to be more of a root cause for SIBO and IBS, IBS is the irritable bowel syndrome, um, is is more of a uh, dysregulation of the nervous system and the uh, migrating motor complex, right? So if, and this is actually in practice now, a lot of doctors are testing the motility, um, time span of motility for people to, uh, how long it takes for, for some people's, uh, food to go through their digestive system. And that, mm. that can in uh, like a slower motility will often be correlated with SIBO with that small intestine bacterial overgrowth.
0: And that, that mm-hmm. could that also be like, I mean, I'm just thinking here, but people are moving less today they're more sedentary sedentary yeah i'm sure that also like if you're moving a lot it probably moves the food through your tract faster too
1: yes exactly yeah and that and sleep disturbances i find to be more also a root cause that because um there's a good book what's the book Lights out. Um, that talks a lot about sleep and light exposure, and it talks a lot about how melatonin actually helps with regulating the overgrowth of bacteria. So we have uh, evolved with these bacteria these bacteria, if we let them, will take over us. <laughs> and so the me- melatonin production is a natural like sedative to the gut bacteria and it helps pre- prevent them from overgrowing. Interesting. So, so many of my SIBO clients and IBS clients who might have SIBO also, um, they are not sleeping. Their circadian rhythm is dysregulated. They're, they're not getting enough melatonin production naturally because of light exposure that they have. So, um, that's another, a big, another big thing for, for SIBO. And then IBD is, in, um, uh, intestinal bowel disease, which is an umbrella term for several different, more like autoimmune conditions, like celiac, all sort of colitis, um, Maybe diverticulitis, but, uh, typically like Crohn's and those, those conditions. And those also are very much linked to leaky gut. You're going to have that going on, but those are more of a degeneration, like a very, you can, they can do endoscopies and colonoscopies to see actual damage to the lining of the gut at that stage. What's really frustrating for a lot of people with IBS or SIBO is that they'll go and get those stool tests done or um, colonoscopies, and you can't see the microbiome imbalances <laughs> in those situations. And there's not enough damage quite to the microvilli that they're going to see it like that. It's going to be through a microscopic um, type of um analysis that they would have to look at the the microvilli through that and they're not going to do a, um, they're not going to take a piece of your colon yeah. for for, the, for SIBO so yeah so those are the more those are some of the differences that I see but they're all I always uh, they're all associated with dysbiosis and leaky gut is is a is going to be there as well
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Cause that was kind of my next question. Like how do you know the difference maybe between a SIBO and having just a leaky gut, you know, right? Um, that usually they come hand in hand.
1: Yes, mm-hmm, they do. Yeah. And the, the other thing that goes on along with SIBO, it's very common um, because we just overeat in general, like we're eating too frequently. And then my so there's peristalsis that actually helps with the movement of food when we eat. And then the migrating motor complex is actually more active when we're fasting. So that's another reason why like most people with SIBO, they, they've they been told to eat more small frequent meals because they get bloated so quickly. But what might actually be best for them is to do more intermittent fasting and, and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, that's that's something I was wondering about because I have done intermittent fasting for quite a while. I haven't been doing it as much the last year, but is that a, a strategy you use for for healing mm-hmm. the gut? And would it be like something you use across the board or just like for for example?
1: Yeah, I like to use it across the board. Not immediately, depending on how somebody's blood sugar regulation status is, um, but eventually it can help with... The actually fasting helps with increasing diversity of different microbes and, um, and it actually gives the gut a really good rest. So when we're not digesting food, it's almost like, if you think about leaky gut being an open wound on your skin, like you're not going to want to use that that hand a lot if if you need to have a Band-Aid on it for a while. So you're going to give it some rest. And so intermittent fasting is definitely a tool across the board I use.
0: That makes so much mm-hmm. sense too. I mean, a couple things you've mentioned now, like fasting, you know, moving more, mm-hmm. the sun, like it's all mm-hmm. these ancestral things, right, that we've been doing, we were doing forever and that we haven't yes. in the last few hundred years. Like it's just, and that's, yeah. I mean, it, there's so much, I don't, you know, my, I don't have the evidence personally to say it's causation, but it just seems like there's a big connection there to me.
1: Yes, I think you're right. I think so many more people would, like someone who has a healthy microbiome is going to still be able to um, like, probably eat a lot of standard American foods and not have a lot of symptoms. And like, you know, some. Someone with a healthy ecosystem in their in their microbiome can eat a croissant and it's going to be nourishing to them. Whereas someone who has an imbalance of gut bacteria, it's going to feed those opportunistic bacteria and create disease, right, for people.
0: And um, I know we mentioned you know stressors are big and, and some other things, but food can cause issue to, to the gut. But if you just zoom in on the food for for a minute. Like, what are some of the foods out there that we're eating a lot of as a society that are culprits? Like that are mm-hmm. actively damaging the gut, and then, um, like, at what point does like eating that food actually lead to long term gut issues? You know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the croissant example is kind of <laughs> a bad example because. Because it's really the starches and sugars that are in a standard American diet and more modern industrialized processings of these, these, um, starchy foods that are poor in nutrition, but high in calorie are going to feed opportunistic bacteria more than the, um, beneficial, especially if we've already have an imbalance, right? Like, Over time, someone who has a good balance, if they're just subsisting on processed foods, over time, they're going to have malnourished uh, cells. And I think there is something too that I see often that it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Is it the body was already malnourished? And so the ecosystem of the bacteria are playing off of... That and that can very well be true because, you know, something like, uh, not having enough B12 or zinc to produce enough stomach acid will really impact the digestion of certain starches. And the longer, uh, the longer chain carbohydrates we have, those are the starches. And so those actually do require a lot of enzyme to help break that down and then um, and then the bacteria and so if we can get um if we have poor enzymatic production from poor stomach acid then we can actually get an, a maldigestion of these carbohydrates and that occurs from fermentation basically fermentation of these starches in the gut and then byproduct you know your gut bacteria is going to just Balance that out in a way, um, and this has been shown in literature that so the good bacteria, it, they can eat protein, fat, and and carbohydrates. And in studies that I've read, they they um, they will say that they prefer carbohydrates. Right? This is another skewed um, understanding of the microbiome is that all all of the prebi, there's all these prebiotics in probiotics, which are necessary to, to keep the, the probiotics alive. Right. But, and those are tend to be the, the, the favorites. However, um, when we think about actually the application of the human digestive system, carbohydrates don't they rarely actually make it to the colon. Mm. So so the colon is where those the, the bulk of the bacteria, the beneficial bacteria lie and and reside, right? And so those they actually love protein because proteins will make it there um more intact. And so when we do a microbiome shifting diet, we really want to really feed the good bacteria, the proteins and some fats as well. Um, and avoid the long chain carbohydrates, which tend to be maldigested and ferment, and then also feed a lot of the opportunistic bacteria along the way until they get to like, sometimes they don't even make it (laughs) to the colon in the first place. So a good book that, um, talks about this is called uh bacteria for breakfast Mm. and it was written by a a doctor and she gets really a lot more into the science and research about how digestion happens with bacteria and it's fascinating (laughs) it's a really great
0: yeah i'll have to check that out i'll link it in the episode description for people to check out Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. are there like if you had like four or so food groups maybe you would omit or tell people to to omit to really help their their gut thrive what would those be
1: i think so first i'll I'll answer that question but first i always like to focus more on what to eat instead Mm. of what not to eat so the the four cornerstones to gut healing that i talk about are uh the animal based proteins because they're more nourishing and easier to digest and and they're more bioavailable for that nutrition to make sure the host is really healthy so we're we're um able to produce enough digestive enzymes and and uh, digestive juices so then um Organs are included in that. So that's kind of the second. It's more for therapeutic food because a lot of people will be eating animal protein, but not eating organs. So I want to emphasize that. And then um, we want to be eating non-starchy vegetables. So non-starchy vegetables are totally fine. And I would also include um, the lower lectin containing foods and not for everybody, but for some, they, that might be prone to kidney stones um, or who have thyroid, Hashimoto's, um, there's certain conditions that are implicated with there's too much oxalate toxicity in the body. So you could also incorporate more lower oxalate uh, foods. That's uh, a
0: fascinating vegetables. one. But oxalates, that's mm-hmm. something I've been reading a lot more about. And uh, yeah. it's just unfortunate because... Like, some of people's favorite foods, even real foods, are high in oxalates, like chocolate, sweet potatoes, right?
1: Sweet potatoes (laughs) are a big one. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And not everyone needs to be worried about them, but I think they're important for us to be uh, knowledgeable about because if you do overeat them they the there's certain bacteria in our gut the oxalobacter that will di- help us digest oxalates or or make sure that we don't get toxicity and if we overconsume them right like if we're having sweet potato every single day for the whole the whole year that one that's not ancestral likely like that wouldn't have happened um we have just an overabundance of resources to foods that we want whenever we want and um and so we if we eat too many of the oxalates the oxalobacter actually like eat up all the oxalates and then explode
0: oh really so we
1: don't have them anymore (laughs) yeah so you have to be more cautious especially if you've just like overindulged at times um but you know some people won't bioaccumulate still because of other bacteria that maybe we don't know of that are are possibly helping the gut bacteria, right? We only know a few um of these bacteria that help with oxalate break, breaking down the oxalates and everyone's microbiome is like a fingerprint too. So it comes down to more of the functionality of all of these bacteria working together and not necessarily like, Oh, you're missing this. You need this like a puzzle, right? It's, it's, it's not so reductionistic, <laughs> unfortunately. Um yeah. So the did I answer your question? I got yeah. That. Well, we were <laughs> talking did.
0: about the the main food groups, like the four. You would admit. And oh, then yes. You said there are four big pillars. Yes. Uh, yeah.
1: So non-starchy vegetables, which would also maybe include for some for some people, especially if you have an autoimmune disease, low lectin, and then um, if you have uh, like kidney stone issues, you would reduce slowly the oxalate toxicity. Um, and then the fourth is probiotic foods. You want to be repopulating the gut. So those are the four cornerstones that we want to incorporate in our diet. And then, um and then, so the four main food group foods that you would want to avoid are uh, things like seed oils. Absolutely, um, they are going to imbalance a lot of the opportunistic bacteria. And do they, do they
0: feed them or?
1: yes yeah they can feed them as well as um so they this is more of a theory i would say but from what i've seen with working so much with people with chronic fatigue syndrome and nervous system dysregulation as well as mitochondria dysfunction with like fibromyalgia and those types of clients that um so our mitochondria is theorized to be uh actually evolved from bacteria. And I, I think there's a lot of communication. I don't know how this is totally theoretical, but I think there's a huge connection between the gut bacterias and, and our mitochondria. And there is a lot of byproducts that are oxidative damage to the mitochondria through, um, through the seed oils that mm. they're, I think of them as like uh if you're using oil to oil a machine these are going to gum up the machine much more uh, quickly and have a negative impact on the mitochondria and therefore also your gut bacteria so and, and I, then I, I,
0: mm-hmm. sorry continue i did not know well i was just <laughs> going to say like have you have you s- like seen this in, in your practice at least when you when people emit the oils that things get better
1: absolutely okay. mm-hmm. i think if that's the, so one of the first things that I'll have people focus on as well as, um, the major like starchy, um, starches that are complex starches, polysaccharides. And so that's things, even healthy starches like sweet potato. I will make sure people aren't having those or cassava. Um, and then, uh, so seed oils, starches, um, I would say alcohol. So there are some studies on the back on the microbiome and leaky gut where they actually use alcohol to induce leaky gut. And so they, (laughs) I just really don't think it's the best for, for somebody who's got, you can drink in moderation. If I uh, have people drinking alcohol, it's clear alcohol and it's small, small amounts. Um, and then I try to, I use a lot of the ketogenic diet with a lot of my clients, not always, but when you're in ketosis, you have a lot less, um, you, you're more sensitive to alcohol. So you only need a little bit anyways. And then I love to use things like beet kvass or probiotic rich um, therapeutic brines that are supportive to, um, to the liver to help with maintaining um, integrity of toxin overload. So, but yeah, it will, the alcohol does create more of that leaky gut. Uh so you, you'd want to, this is why I think, you know, traditionally alcohol was drink, uh, mostly because when there was like a famine or something, right? Like you're going to drink alcohol to get you through the tough times and not necessarily. And then um it tr- in other cultures, from what I've learned from Mary and her studying that the alcohol that is used is really low alcohol content. So it's really not the high co- content that we have today. So it, Probably wouldn't if you're eating that, if you're eating and drinking the more ancestral alcohols, um, you're probably much better off to not have to worry about that. But, um, but yeah, if you're drinking high high concentrations of alcohol, it might be well, too while you're fasting.
0: <laughs> I also wonder if a lot of the ancestral alcohols also came with probiotics. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't, I mean, at, at some yeah. point, the alcohol content will kill the microbes but like a low uh you know a low
1: yeah
0: uh like some ferments great you know Mm -hmm. i mean that's how i'm making wine right now i'm fermenting it and there's got to be also some sort of probiotics in there Uh, obviously like if the alcohol level climbs too Mm -hmm. high those are going to die off but if they were really using more low low level uh you know low alcohol drinks back then it might have also introduced some probiotics just an idea but
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. I think 100% you're right about that. And um, like, I know Mary was talked about her time in Greece and the, the wine um, it's like, you could barely even describe it to be wine as we know it, that they were drinking and it's very high probiotic uh, food. And absolutely. I think there's Case by case situations that I usually use without call with people, like some people really do not feel well after they drink wine. But on the Dr. Natasha's uh, original gaps protocol, like wine is, is allowed for the full gaps diet and it is a ferment. It's a fermented drink. I love mead. Um, I think mead is a great one to Same. start with to try for some people. Yeah. So those more ancestral forms are, are a better bet for
0: sure. Yeah, even though like uh, a kombucha has a little bit of alcohol in it. And that's like one of you know a big probiotic food or drink. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that was only three major uh foods that are that I would avoid. For some reason I can't think of a fourth, but really when I think of plant toxins, like if we're gonna we already talked about the lectins and oxalates, but a third is um the the solamines and, and those are in tomatoes and potatoes um but those are also a little bit more if you're if you're really actively working on healing your gut you would you would probably want to avoid all toxins that we know of and lectins solamines and oxalates are the top 3 that we do know of to impact um, the immune system. And so just to avoid as much stressors as possible, I think this is why a lot of people feel so much relief and healing autoimmune diseases from doing the carnivore diet because you, you just get rid of a lot of those plant toxins. So, um, but I do think we need to incorporate, uh, the other cornerstone. I can't believe I missed this is the meat stock. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. Bone broth, Me- meat stocks like
1: that. Yeah. Yes. But those yeah. would be
0: a food you would you would eat, not that you would have yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just to clarify. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to get into like healing the leaky gut in a bit. Just Let's do I that. see, I saw your video on like meat stock versus bone broth. And mm-hmm. I'm really curious about that. Real quick, just if we stay, like if we talk a little bit more about the plant toxins, um, mm-hmm. is this so gluten you said was a lectin, right? And that's like the big one that everyone, you know, as soon as Mm -hmm. someone now, I feel like as soon as someone eats something, usually bread, they Mm -hmm. have some gut issue. It's like, oh, I might have something with gluten. So, yeah, um, yeah, is it it mostly that these plant toxins are just getting through the leaky gut into our bloodstream or at what point are they damaging us?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are getting into our bloodstream and then some of them are interacting with the lining of the gut directly. Um, so lectins are found in like a lot of the legumes, grains, some vegetables, nuts, and seeds as well. And they're the beneficial thing about uh lectins and like knowing more about lectins is that we don't have to be afraid of them because we can moderate. We can reduce the lectin load by processing which is a relief so an example of this is through the fermentation process you know Mm -hmm. and um like for example if you ferment a 72-hour loaf of sourdough the lectin of gluten is is down to like parts per million or something and instead of it's a small, small amount. Um, So you can help yourself and pre-digest these, these plant toxins if you're processing food more traditionally and ancestrally. And the lectins are also mostly found for, for a lot of the nightshade vegetables that are favorites for people like tomatoes and peppers. They're, they're mostly found in the seeds and the skins mm. and a lot of traditional practices were to roast and peel the lining of or peel the skin off of the peppers and then de-seed them and or ferment them and you can ferment them into a hot sauce or tomato sauce um, also traditionally in italy the tomato sauces were were de, uh, de-seeded and skinned, like they would completely get rid of those in the tomato sauces. So yeah. that's another processing way to reduce the lectin exposure.
0: The food companies uh, today are not doing that.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. exactly. They're cutting corners. So yeah. people are much more uh, reactive to those kinds of things. So I, I think it's when you start making your own food, and uh, I think people on your podcast are, kind of foodies like interested in this and wanting to get back to ancestral principles that's that's how we protect ourselves and we don't have to worry about lectins if we're eating these things more seasonally Um, Lectins are also found in very like unripe fruits and food that's stored for a really long time and often picked too early in our, you know, modern industrialized food system is going to be like high lectin foods. And so we can easily get rid of those if we're properly, properly soaking and sprouting our, you know, the grains and legumes, nuts and seeds even fermenting them um and then store you know eating more fresh and local and seasonally
0: so if we were to do a seed um uh, or a nut for example um is it <laughs> or like oh it's a um, is oh it's a good example i guess oats and some oh it's yeah. just nuts would you just like soak them overnight in water or in something else or how would you do that
1: yeah, so you the different grains and nuts and seeds require different lengths of time. So there are blog posts all over the internet about that. I mean, um I think there's not like a true science to it, but I think I was err on the side of longer than than shorter.
0: Yeah.
1: Um I think generally I'll tell people to do 24 to 48 hours. Um but I generally tell people to avoid oats altogether because they're not that nutrient dense and i i steer people towards other uh gluten-free grains instead for some reason but uh yes you could do like an overnight oats at the bare minimum but a longer ferment would be better Uh, yeah
0: yeah (laughs) i guess it's it's interesting because like yeah it's just another step you have to take and i think you know overnight oats that's still pretty well known Mm -hmm. Uh, like You know, grandma did that kind of deal. But I feel like nuts and whatnot, that's not something people would ever think about soaking uh, water before they eat it. But that does indeed reduce some of these plant toxins. and It does. You know, you just mentioned seasonality. That makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, now we have this food all year long. We've exposed it to the lectins all year long. So maybe, well, in the, you know… 13th century it wasn't as bad to eat a bunch of tomatoes cuz you were just eating them when they were in harvest. You weren't eating them all yeah. year long.
1: Right. Exactly. I think that's that that concept of moderation I really push against for some people because, you know, it's not um i mean i think people apply that in the terms of oh okay like throughout the week right but i like to apply that term of moderation seasonally because i think it's much more accurate to how humans would have lived for thousands of years before
0: yeah Mm -hmm. so if we if we switch gears a little bit into more like solutions no we've sprinkled some of them in there here and there but you know if someone comes to you what are like some of the, the popular approaches you use or things that seem to work across the board or with a lot of clients at least?
1: Yeah, well, yes, we did talk a lot about um, intermittent fasting and I will definitely include that at some point. Um, I'll usually go uh, zero starch and put people on a easy to digest uh, phase of food. So what that usually looks like is similar to the GAPS intro, um, where you're eating soups for, uh, a period of time. And so that time, length of time will vary for different people. I think it's a great challenge, I guess, for most people that come to me. Um, we try to do like 30 days of only soups. Wow. When I first, yeah, when I first did the GAPS diet, I did it in a group setting and, it, we were all doing the soups and, uh, it was very, it was hugely transformational. I think the, the first week you will definitely have like day three to day seven. There's going to be die off, um, because you're only eating soups and it's very shocking to, to me still when I'm in practice with people, um, and to a lot of my clients that someone could be coming to me on a carnivore diet and then I put them on soups and they feel completely different and they still experience die off. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking to me that, that the way we cook our food has such an impact on our gut and our digestion. And so the soups is, if you think about, you know, when you're sick and you've got some, um, you've got a fever or something like that. What is grandma going to do? Make you chicken soup. It's in every ancestral tradition, like making a stew or broth, those, that easy to digest form of nutrition is going to go to the sick. It's going to go to the elderly, right? Like those are, this is the way we heal. And so uh, I'm, I'm always shocked too when people are like, wow, I had all this come up like a healing crisis or some some uh form of or or improvement sometimes when people have already done a lot of work moving into the soups is not that big of a deal and they only feel better right and then that is the key right that's we should feel better when we when we do these these things at a certain point but but usually what i uh see is that there is some Die-off reactions at first, especially if you're going from like say for my husband, when he first did the diet, he had terrible IBS symptoms, honestly. Um potentially had celiac. He's he was always undiagnosed. Um, but he was going, he went from eating donuts to eating soups for 30 days. It's
0: gotta be a shock.
1: Oh, yeah, he felt so terrible for the first three weeks of just fit the really the, um, withdrawal from sugar. Mm. So some, of, a lot of it is a withdrawal from sugar biochemically to the brain, because there's a lot of the repair that your gut has to do to actually make up for all of those neurotransmitters that haven't been there all along, but you've been using sugar to actually band-aid approach cope with, with, um, with that issue. Mm. So, um, some other solutions that I use are like the ketogenic diet, because the, um, intermittent fasting, I find it can be much harder without doing the ketogenic diet. And for a lot of the mitochondria dysfunction clients and nervous system dysregulation, we really do need to amp up the energy of the body so that digestion can start working much better. Um, And, and that's, that's where the healing process happens. If you don't have fully functioning, functioning mitochondria, um, it's going to be much difficult, much more difficult to heal. Though you can do it without being in ketosis, so it's not an essential. Um, yeah, carnivore diet I will use occasionally for some people as a, um, especially like with the meat stocks being so beneficial to regenerating the lining of the gut. Not always can people tolerate it at first. And that's usually because healing and regenerating cells will increase the histamines for a short period of time. And the, the, if you're already prone to not being able to handle those histamines very well, you can have an increase of symptoms and it can be really, impactful to your like kind of disruptive to your sleep and if that's the case we we always want to prioritize sleep um when we're healing and regenerating cells so i find the carnivore diet without meat stock um and doing just like kind of a lion diet uh, meat salt and water approach can really help with draining the histamines briefly so eliminating everything
0: but the meat basically in that case yeah
1: Yes, exactly. And then I use a lot of therapeutic uh, fermented foods. So high doses of kefir or um, homemade raw milk. What's a high dose of
0: kefir to you?
1: yeah so sometimes i'll just say unlimited for some of my clients i I
0: drink a lot i make it every day so
1: yeah yeah Yeah, it's dependent so right off the bat you always want to go slowly that's one of the biggest issue with adding and probiotic foods is people will jump in all they're like this is good for me so they chug like three cups or something and then all of a sudden they're um, rushing to the (laughs) the bathroom with a Yeah. Did that happen to you?
0: (laughs) Oh, it's happened before. Yeah. If I took like, if I take a break from kefir for a while and then I come back to it and of course I start drinking it to the level that I do Mm -hmm. when I, when I make it a lot and then, yeah, that happens for sure.
1: Yeah. 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 So lots of kefir Um, and then raw milk kefir has a lot more bacteria than um, like a non, if you make your own kefir from like a pasteurized milk it's still alive and i do use that at the beginning for some of my clients because it it's not as potent but it's it is still very potent when you when you're fermenting your own um but raw milk has actually trillions more um bacteria than than actually like not using raw milk so that's, right
0: you get the benefit of whatever was in the milk already and not just what you're introducing with your kefir grains right
1: Yes, exactly. hmm Yes. So, and then I'll use other therapeutic uh, forms of probiotics. There's one pill that I use often with anyone who has um, chronic cases of UTIs, has hi- history of e- or, sorry, ear infections, um, any foodborne illness history, food poisoning kind of thing, um, or after they've had an antibiotic, I'll use a product called Nissel, or it's called Mutiflor, but the strain of bacteria is the Nissel nineteen seventeen, mm-hmm. um, and that probiotic is a beneficial E. coli strain that is a really a, one of those key commensal species in the gut to help with. Um, Kind of I like to think of it like the scaffolding to hold a lot of the other more transient types of bacteria that we're we should be having by bi- like probiotic foods in our diet every day and that's that's something that even after you heal you know your leaky guts like some of these things are gonna stick and they should because that's how humans would have lived their life right is to right. have these things all the time and so I do think of um. He- gut healing more in that way that it it is kind of a lifelong approach, um, with a lifestyle change instead of just a quick fix. Yeah. That's why things like, you know, powders, gut healing powders don't really work, or maybe they work when you're taking it, but then you have to take a supplement all the rest of your life. And that's not as enjoyable as just eating really, uh, very jo- enjoyable foods and satisfying foods.
0: All right. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you save a lot of money doing it yeah. yourself.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. All yes. you need
0: is a little salt and some water and whatever you're fermenting.
1: Mm-hmm. Get some
0: stuff going at least for some ferments.
1: It's yeah, it's amazing. It's so simple uh to make your own ferments. Yeah, with fermented vegetables and yeah, it's very easy.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of times now the meat stock. Mm-hmm. And I know that's part of your healing um approach and a lot of people that i've I've follow and i've I've read stuff i've read about it they say to heal leaky gut you do bone broth with like a glycine supplement so i get like pairing Uh those two like on on an empty stomach is gonna rebuild the gut lining um but i know you 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 made a cool video about like how meat stocks actually better than the bone broth in that case yeah can you go into that a bit
1: Yes, yes. It is so much better than the bone broth um, because they've done studies um on the different amino acids that are released during the cooking time of making bone broth. And during the first two to three hours of making a bone broth, which is really what you would call a meat stock at that point, um, you will have highest concentrations of glycine and proline in the meat stock at that time. And then when you keep cooking it into making a bone broth, which is really long uh cooking of 24 to 48 hours or sometimes longer, um, you're going to get higher concentrations. You'll lose the glycine and proline and, and get higher concentrations of glutamate. Mm. And Dr. Natasha show, found that with working with a lot of her autistic children, that they did not do well with bone broth because with autism and a lot of neurological diseases, you have leaky brain. Um, the the blood brain barrier is very similar to the lining of the gut. And when we get that kind of leaky gut, leaky skin, we also get leaky brain. And so the glutamate Protein should never really pass through. It's too large of a molecule to pass through the blood brain barrier. But when we have leaky brain, it does. And it was very excitatory to the autistic children. And it's also common. Like I'll see a lot of people come to me. Who, they're like, oh, I've tried bone broth. It makes me anxious or irritable and aggressive. Sometimes those people have leaky gut, <laughs> leaky brain. And um, you can also test if you have leaky gut or leaky brain by doing, um, taking a GABA supplement. GABA should also not, not pass through the blood brain barrier, but oftentimes people will take it and they say it helps with anxiety and that the, yeah, if you feel calm after you take GABA, that's great it helped but unfortunately you have leaky gut and you should you might want to fix that (laughs) too that's good to know
0: because yeah people always say you got to take that for sleep and yeah calming yourself down and whatnot
1: yeah yeah for sure so the meat stock is superior especially for those kinds of conditions that you have the leaky brain but i use it all the time at the beginning for all of my clients because we do need Um, those cells of the intestines, there's research that shows that you need more of the proline and the glycine, Um, definitely the glycine to help with rebuilding the lining of the gut. And that's what the meat stock is. It's, you can think of it like a glue in a way to like seal up the lining of the gut. It kind of does that. It just, those nutrients go straight towards rebuilding those intestinal lining cells.
0: That's awesome. So those are really two proline and glycine are two amino acids that are the building blocks for these gut uh the cells in your gut and your gut lining yeah and they'll close those junctions up that you showed us Mm. earlier Mm -hmm. interesting
1: absolutely and do you
0: need to do that on an empty stomach or does it not matter
1: it does not matter you can do it with food or on an empty stomach i'll have people you want to amp up to taking like six cups of it a day. Mm. So a lot of meat stock per day to really actively restore a leaky gut. Um, That period of length of time of doing that much really varies for different people. So on the GAPS protocol, really, you want to be avoiding the starches and sugar for up to 24 months. And that will really fully ensure that we're Starving out, not really. I I don't like to use the terms. I used to use the terms "starving out" um, more, but it's not really what's happening. We're kind of, we are starving out some of the opportunistic bacteria, but it's not all of it, right? Like, cause imagine this ecosystem of bacteria; these opportunistic bacteria are supposed to be there, but they just need to be kept in check by the good bacteria. So what we do is we start them out enough or long enough until the good bacteria are bigger <laughs> in quantity. And then when we add back in starches after that 24 months long Stint, uh, we often have much greater success with being able to tolerate these foods again because it's not feeding um, the imbalance anymore. Not
0: not feeding the bad bacteria as much. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's the biggest issue that I see happen. And I did this in my own healing journey is I reintroduced starch too soon, and I was trying like you know cassava or plantain and like healthier starches, but it. I felt great at first. I was like, Oh, great. I'm fine. I'm healthy again. But it was, um, months down the road where I would get a resurgence of some of my symptoms. And that's, that's usually what happens is unfortunately we can get like this yo-yo effect. We just do the best we can, you know, like, cause that's, that's okay. Like that happened to me. I still healed and there's hope for everybody. And there that we just do the best we can because sometimes once in a while, like, you get stuck in a situation and maybe you happen to have a bite of rice, but it is good to know that that tiny little bite of rice will feed some of that opportunistic bacteria, whether it's going to set you back 10 years. No, you know, like it, it might not, it's not going to ruin your whole life. And so you might think, Oh, I'm, I'm well now. And so you might expand your diet a little bit more, but what I would encourage someone who has leaky gut who knows they have leaky gut is always do the best you can inside your home to keep the starches and sugars out while you're out you know being as prudent as possible for that 24 month period you know and don't don't like beat yourself up about it but you know it's good to have that education at least we know uh as as much you did the best you can right like you did as much as you could
0: and are, so, are you saying no, st- like starchy foods at all? Like, mm-hmm. like, we still gotta get the carbohydrates from somewhere, at least some of them, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, um, on my on my website, I have a food list that's a gut healing food list that people can download, and that has a list of all the different carbohydrates that I I use and that are approved for this kind of uh, specific. Car- it's based on the specific carbohydrate diet and approach to not feeding opportunistic bacteria. And um, and so you can you can get a ton of, of carbohydrates through fruit and also honey right. on this approach, <clears throat> you know? So you don't have to necessarily so be eat low carb.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And again, yes.
0: fermented fruit, right? Like, right. That's probably well, one way to do it. Some of them at least.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It depends on if you, the, these nuances do play into like, whether or not you have SIBO or SIFO, which is, small intestine fungal overgrowth, um, basically similar to candida, right? Like there's so many, there's over 170 different types of yeast and candida. Albicans is just one of them. So fungus tends to be more finicky when it comes to honey and fructose. If someone has issues when they introduce those things or have them in their diet still while doing a gut healing protocol, it could be from that kind of fungus overgrowth And then we want to ask the question, well, why is the fungus there? You know, so it's not that you won't be able to have fruit for the rest of your life, but we want to balance the fruit fungus or the yeast out with either supporting detoxification. Usually fungus is there to protect us from heavy metals or potentially there's mold exposure in your house. You know, those kinds of things can, we can rule those things out. But yeah, honey, fruit, fermented fruit, a hundred percent because for SIBO or IBS, some people will feel terrible with too much fructose in the in the gut. So you can ferment it to make it less.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just did fermented bananas for the first time a while ago.
1: Awesome. They're
0: not very sweet, but it was still an interesting no. flavor. Like I liked it a lot. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah, Mary, because she last time she was on, she talked about the, like a banana beer that they were drinking in Africa and that gave me the hey. idea. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. How did you use how did you ferment it? Did you so, use like a co- it, coconut water?
0: Uh no, I so I did I did have at I do did have some probiotic pills still left. So I used those oh, as a starter. Nice. But yeah, I yeah. know coconut water is one you can take. You can do like water kefir. Water use kefir. Use that as your okay. starter. Um but yeah, I just did a really quick like short, I think a twelve hour ferment or 16 hour or something like that because i did read with awesome. the bananas you don't want to let it go too long um yeah there's not too much yeah. info on it honestly how did it i could find but it worked yeah. and and then i was just taking shots of a banana water afterwards for awesome a little bit yeah that was yeah. that was really fun um and there's so yes. many cool things you can do
1: yes there really is it's it's the yeah there's so much i i want to take a million classes on fermentation i still have yet to do that but i want to i want to do more um, yeah, and learn there's more.
0: a really good book by sandra kautz i think his name is the yeah, art of yeah, fermentation that's yeah. really good so mm-hmm. one more thing i know we're almost out of time but um how long you kind of laid it out a bit there but how long can we expect to, for like a gut healing journey to take? And mm-hmm. cause there's, a, you mentioned it a little bit, but there, there's some ups and downs in there as well, right? Oh,
1: yes, there are. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that and had that question. Um The, there are ups and downs. So what I commonly <clears throat> see are these periods of die off, extreme family die offs that, that's happening in the gut. So the first month is where the most different um, opportunistic bacterias will die off. And that's why a lot of people will uh, give up too soon, you know, like on doing something like the carnivore diet, even um, because there's a lot of die off that happens. But usually there's going to be a peak of feeling like this window of I've, this is the best I've ever felt for a period of time. And like, even before you started, right. So you have this glimpse of like, wow, this is what could be possible. And that might happen, you know, for a week or one day, a couple of hours, it depends on really how sick someone is before they go into something like this. Because I like to tell people like, you know, if you're a healthy Human, you should be able to eat, go on any diet and feel pretty much the same, right? Like if you have a healthy, uh, if, if your nutritional status is, is up to par and your gut bacteria is also balanced, you can go to, you can have a very varied diet from day to day and be healthy. So when people go into a, di- a healing diet, like the gaps approach and they feel temporarily ill, (laughs) that is not the diet that's making them ill. You know, it is clearly a reaction to the diet that their body has. And because they have potentially nutritional deficiencies, blood sugar dysregulation, things that were making them sick before they started the diet, those things are reacting to this new diet. So the first month there's a bit of that going on and i tell people the worst case scenarios to always kind of prepare them and and if it's better than that then they feel a lot more relief instead of being like you never told me this would yeah. happen and then all of a sudden you know these things are the the worst and i've seen the gamut i've seen some people not have any kind of detox reaction at all. And then some people have very intense, like they can't even get out of their bed all, and they were able to a day ago, but it always resolves. <laughs> so I just tell people like, and we support, we do some things to help with the interim in the interim, you know, to help that process go more smoothly. There's a lot of lifestyle things like enema is not always necessary, but uh, hundred percent, if you're having a really bad time with detox and, and then the second and third months, there's a bit of that too. So you'll feel ups and then down again around the second month mark, second month mark. And then the third month mark, you get another peak of die-off, usually you're pretty much clear in the clear again until six months. And then 12 months, there's another die-off. From the 12-month mark to 24-month mark, this is where we can really start implementing a lot of reseeding of the gut, good, healthy gut bacteria. Mm. So the first year is really just you might be eating fermented food still but it's pushing out the bad right right and so the whole next year is really all about establishing balance right so the more consistent you can be with having ferments in and all of the and keeping your detox pathways open and not really changing very much we kind of just like coast until the 12-month mark. There can still be a lot of healing crises, though, that happen in that second year. It really just depends on how long you've dealt with issues before starting a gut healing approach. So some of my clients have been dealing with these things for a lifetime right it's been a long time and uh and even for me in my healing journey like I said like it was ups and downs and ups and downs even after I had felt like I had already made it you know so there's I, I think there's an element to um being just very gracious with yourself and trusting that your body is You are supplying the very things that your body needs. And then we can always do... Sometimes I will use testing in that second year um, if we're like really up against the wall with some, some issue, but skin issues usually take the longest to heal. So I, you know, we don't we kind of just stick it out and keep making sure we're getting a lot of good nutrition fats to help with skin cellular barrier integrity, like really good saturated fats help that the most. And, um, and then, yeah, kind of like blood sugar balance. So, you know, the, at that point, if we're still struggling with those things, then we need to change uh, and address those nutritional imbalances because by the second year, usually we would see a resolution of those types of things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so it's, so it's truly a healing journey, not a healing vacation. Like it's yeah. going to be at least like, you know, a year or two yeah. or even more. And yes. that's something I think is important to say because even with keto and low carb, like people will... You know, most mm-hmm. people I talked to, I did low carb for like nine plus years. And a yeah. big tar- part of that was keto. And like a lot of people I talked to, they're like, oh, I've done low carb. I did it for like a month. And I'm like, no way you saw like, you know, yeah. the, be- the best results. So, right. uh, it's, it- so it's something you got to be patient with. And then you're also, you know, going back to the beginning that we talked about, you're battling against these other stressors that are not mm-hmm. just food related. So you just got to, like you said, be gracious with yourself. and- Uh, take Mm -hmm. time trust the process um yeah and Mm -hmm. no it's not and it's not like you know you might not be able to eat a lot of the foods you ate or you like to eat anymore but there's still a lot of delicious food you can make out of simple real foods and there's so many resources out there for that um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know how to especially nowadays like how to make a delicious meal out of just a few ingredients that are within the bounds of what you can eat so Mm -hmm. it's doable yes
1: absolutely and and kind of going off of that i like to say that i'm in the business of transformation and you know i i can i work i know a lot of different diets i in the functional clinic i use the antihistamine diet you know fodmap diets like these band-aid diets and i just they're not my most favorite to work with because i want to I want to help people transform. And when we are shifting the microbiome to a better balance, that's really, you know, 90% of us, 90% of us is going to change. And I, I always remind my clients that you, you know, yes, now it's hard to imagine living a life without this, this food, but in two years or not even two years, but very soon, like six to six months to 12 months in, you will not even bat an eye at a cookie or, oh. you know, a slice of Wonder Bread, right? Like you're, you're just not even going to even want that. No, you're because your bacteria are changing and you're transformed and that transforms you. Um, and, and so that's super empowering for people because especially anyone who's come to me with like a weight, goal you know they it's so difficult to resist the foods of modern commerce right like they're made to be addictive and um damaging really to our our bodies so uh it's difficult to resist that like i have so much um I was I'm a recovering sugarholic for sure like not recovering but like recovered because I've shifted my microbiome like I no longer have that kind of craving so it's amazing it's hard to imagine at the beginning I remember thinking that at the beginning like there's no way I'm not gonna have this in the rest of my life like yeah now it's so it's simple yeah Yeah, I don't need to
0: yeah it's it's, Mm -hmm. it's a it's really cool how that works and every once in a while you know you'll get like oh, I'm going to do a cheat day today. And then, you know, I get excited and then I'll do a cheat day. But usually I go into it knowing how I'm going to feel. And it's a good reminder of how I could be feeling or used to feel when I ate all that crappy industrially processed food, you know?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. You can like brace yourself. (laughs) And I'll
0: still enjoy my cheat day. But, you know, afterwards, I'm not going to want to do it for a while.
1: Yes. yes yeah and then i'm always and like
0: how do people do this every day <laughs> like yeah right without yeah.
1: yeah yes that that threshold that our bodies get used to with being able to be on the the standard american diet and just feeling like almost numb to our bodies until they're literally screaming at us and then and then we go on we change our diet and that that noise that white noise just like calms down and then we have these cheat days or something and you, you get that back and you're like, Whoa, that's what it was like, but all of the time, right? Like your body had to figure out a way to make it keep silent, right? Yeah. So you can actually work and function. Yeah. Kind of normal.
0: <laughs> yeah. It is crazy though too, like what the body can adjust and adapt to as well. Um, but yeah, I'd mm-hmm. much rather go into it eating real foods, knowing also that I'm going to have the nutrients to have a healthy gut and whatnot. That's something we didn't get super deep into, but there's a lot of foods like that you should be eating to provide your gut with the right nutrients. I guess we talked about the meat stock and the glycine and proline and whatnot.
1: Yes. Um,
0: It just sounds like overall to me that, you know, my big takeaway really is, again, focus more on ancestral ways, try to eliminate some of these, um, toxins that are out there if you can, you know, some you can't because mm. just, they might be in your water, you might be living in a city and you're drinking tap water because that's, mm-hmm. you also don't want to drink bottled water, right? And That's got yeah. toxins in it and it's like some people just don't, they can't, they don't have a well to get good water from and whatnot but the things you do mm-hmm. can control try to control and get your movement, get like in, get your sun in focus on your sleep and mm-hmm. uh, and also try to you know if it's really serious only eat those foods that you kind of laid out and that you know you teach people about so
1: yeah there's a lot of the foods like the food list is actually i know we, we just talked about the groups but in each of those there's so much you can eat and i remember for me when i first found out about my food sensitivities i was told to just avoid those foods right and and now I'm eating abundance of eggs and dairy. Like I was intolerant to those things. So it's satisfying to eat this way. Like you're saying that when you can heal the lining of your gut, you're not reactive to dairy anymore. And you can have kefir and sour cream and whipped cream and um tons of like I love making Russian custard. It's like mm. egg yolk and a little bit of like honey. And you just it's so simple. Isn't it? There's other more advanced recipes, but that's the one that I like to use. Is it simplest. just
0: what? What is it? Just yeah, uh, egg eggs, egg, egg yolk, and
1: and honey, and or you can use stevia, like um green leaf, the not the drops, but the, like the whole food. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um and then but honey is uh, a common one that will It makes a better texture if you just you kind of blend that together, and then you put it in the freezer, and it. It solidifies to make kind of like a an ice cream custard. Wow, and that's
0: it's awesome. Delicious. Two ingredients, basically. Yes. Wow. So simple. I'm gonna try that.
1: <laughs> yes. And one dude. more
0: one more thing I wanted to say about the meat stock. So my um um my grandma from because I'm from Germany originally.
1: Yeah. I'm half
0: Italian. My my grandma's from Italy, and she grew up, you know, learning from her grandmas, learning how to cook these like medieval Italian meals almost uh. like you know, really traditional stuff. And uh, oh they're like from gosh. this little mountain village and whatnot. And she would, mm. I remember one of my favorite things she always made. Now she's too old to really cook for everyone, but she would mm. uh, make like a, a meat stock, like boil some, you know, a lean piece of meat or sometimes even m- more like something with like, you know, collagen in there, uh, maybe with some tendons can. and whatnot. She would, uh, she mm-hmm. would boil that and then, um, then you have your your meat stock, right? Your soup. But you can then also use that meat and make a meat salad. So she would let the meat oh, co- meat cool down nice. and you can pull it apart almost like a, you know, pulled pork, pulled beef. And then just with some like apple cider vinegar or she'd use like some um, uh, balsamic vin- vinegar and onions and pickles. And that was it. Like you just have like a shredded meat simple. salad. Super simple. And then you also have the meat yeah. stock to drink. And... uh that's, I don't know, you don't really see people making a meat salad. So I just want to, wanted to you put know, that out there. Yeah.
1: I love that <laughs> concept. Well, and it's so much more ancestral salad. Wasn't a thing, you know, in yeah. the past. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. like
1: the way we know it, it was always meat salads or very hearty salads that were with mostly meat based. Right. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that's the best, I think uh, going from a lot of the recipes that I, I'll use with my clients, too, is just that, you know, a meat stock, and then you can make a chicken salad with it, or you can use other bones and meaty bones, any kind of meat, to make a meat stock, and just like that, and drink the broth, and and have your, yeah, the side the main be the, the, the meat, right. um, meat salad. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: And have a good drink with it. That's also going to heal your gut in the long term. Yes. Time, so. Sweet.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, now I wanna so
0: nice. I wanna respect your time, not take too much of your time. I know it's getting late. So okay. <laughs> yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. T- pleasure talking to you. Is there anything that uh, you know we didn't cover that you really want to get out there? And uh, also, like, how can people find you and, and follow you and, and um, work with you if they have issues?
1: Yeah, I. I think we covered most things. I, there's um, some things on intermittent fasting for women that are on my Instagram. So if you're... Yeah, that's that's are, a good
0: one, actually. That, yep, yeah. You should check that out.
1: Yeah, it's totally safe for women. But you just, again, similarly, if you have issues with blood sugar for hormones, if you're Getting hormone problems because you're intermittent fasting. It's probably because you had hormone problems before.
0: Or maybe so, you're eating, uh, not enough calories yeah. too, right? Exactly. That's
1: a hundred percent. Yeah. So I'll use, I, I like to work with women and supporting people's hormones. Hormone issues were a big thing for me. And there's, there are ways to be more ancestral for women. Um, but intermittent fasting is definitely part of it. And at different times in a modern sense, we might need to be stringent or like strategic about when to do that. And usually that's around, uh, less intermittent fasting or less larger, you know, more intense fasts. um, less of those during the luteal phase and just doing a lot more of the fasting during your follicular phases phase, the first two weeks. And yeah, I think, um, I mean, I could talk about this for, for, hours. So yeah, follow me on Instagram. I'm on there a lot and that's nutrition with confidence. And then my website, nutritionwithconfidence.com. And I've got some free, uh, a free download guide for foods to, to change your gut shift your gut. And then I also have some, um, quick start guides to download and you can work with me one on one. I work with clients one on one. Um, yeah, so I, I think we got to most things. gut. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm really, really proud of us. <laughs> it's a big same, concept. Same. So
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's complicated, and there's so much nuance, and it sounds it's not something you can just even cover in a two-hour podcast, you know. But I think it, it was a good. good intro for everyone. And, uh, you know, if they want to dig deeper, definitely go to your Instagram. And I, I spent, like, one awesome. evening just kind of scrolling through all your reels. There's a lot there. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and learned a lot just doing that. I mean, I, I, I had a bunch of other questions, so maybe we can do it again and, you know, dig even maybe a bit deeper or talk about um, blood sugar regulation and some of those other yes. things leading to the chronic diseases of the world these days that really need to be tackled by the root, right? Root Absolutely. Cause. So I'd love to do that. And yeah, thanks for coming on. And I'll link everything in the in the show notes too. So people listening right now, you'll find everything from Natalie there.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: All right. We've come to the end of today's Year of Plenty podcast episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share the episodes with your friends. Don't forget you can get 15% off at Montana Block. Which is www.emptyblock.com. Montana Block is now sponsoring the Year of Plenty podcast. They make handcrafted, American made end grain butcher blocks, wooden cutting boards, wooden knife holders like magnetic knife holders, and a bunch of other cool things. So check out their website again at www.emptyblock.com and use the code Year of Plenty for 15% off. This way you're supporting Montana Block, American made. You're helping me with the podcast, helping me produce this content, and you're getting a discount. So really, it's a win-win-win for everybody. And also, if you haven't already, leave that five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure to send me a screenshot to my Instagram, which is at Wheeland, or to my email address, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com. In return for leaving a review, I will send you my ebook with some of my favorite food preservation recipes in it. If you get a ton of value from the show... One more way to support it is by leaving a donation, either as a patron, you can become a monthly patron and pay as little as $2 a month to support the show, or you can go over to my Buy Me A Coffee page and leave a donation for however much you think this podcast is bringing you value. Finally, join my free monthly newsletter and I will send you monthly emails with more content that is complimentary to the podcast straight to your inbox. You can sign up for the newsletter at www.theyearofplenty.com slash newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, my friends, let's keep exploring real food together and keep striving for that year of plenty.